Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show is an interview only with the great Jonathan Rosen, his new book, The Best Minds, A Story of Friendship Madness and the Tragedy of Good Intention, is a page turner. And our discussion today focuses on kind of the history of how madness has been treated in America since the 19th century. It is a terrific conversation. Please stay tuned. Well, re-education listeners, we have a real treat. One of my favorite writers and a friend, Jonathan Rosen, his new memoir, and it's much more than a memoir. It's a memoir in history called The Best Minds is a must read. And we are going to talk today about the idea of madness and how this concept of madness or insanity has evolved in our society over the last hundred years or so. So, Jonathan, with that, thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation. It's been a long time coming. I've wanted you on for a while. Really glad to be here. So let's. I want to start with one of the things I loved about your book is that you unpack some of the intellectual conceits that led to major policy changes. So I want to start with how did we treat mental illness in our country, say, in 1950? And how did that change over the 20 years between, say, 1950 and 1970? So 1950 is an interesting time to start because that was a transitional moment. There were asylums. It's worth pausing to say that asylums were created in the 19th century as a wonderful act of reform because before they were built, people who were mentally ill were shoved into basements and chained to walls and beaten to get the devil out of them. And people like Dorothea Dix, who was an amazing Protestant reformer, not a reformer of Protestantism, but a Christian reformer whose father was alcoholic and maybe homeless for a time, went around to every state in the union and persuaded the governor that a civilization worthy of the name needs a place where people can be sheltered from the storm. And so it's the reason why that's important as a small backstory is because before that happened, what were really snake pits were the places people were shoved or kept or discarded when there were no places for them and it was seen as a moral failing. There was no concept of it being an illness. Now, there were no cures, but what was offered was called moral care. And these were beautiful places. The idea They were built like libraries as a mm. big, grand civic act. And Frank, Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park, designed the grounds of many of them, including the one he wound up getting sent by his family because he had dementia. So anyway, the asylums were built for a good reason. And moral care meant there were airy and light. There was a a whole plan to create space and time. It was a great gift of time as well. And this is Um, an era, I just want to make, I went on in the 19th century. Correct. In the 19th century. In the 19th century, people didn't think there was a cure for what we today would call paranoid schizophrenia or, or manic depression or these kinds of mental illnesses. They were conditions that there really wasn't much to do right about it. Correct. There was no cure and there was not even a biological conception of the, of there being okay. illnesses. And you can imagine also if someone had what today we would call bipolar disorder, they might go for a time, recover and leave. It's also worth knowing that 20% of people who have a psychotic break and are diagnosed with schizophrenia simply never have another one. And okay. so 
what of course that also means is if you were given some crackpot treatment, like spun in a giant chair, you could see the psychiatrist thinking, well, 20% of my patients recovered. Isn't that amazing? Right, right, right. right. But in any case, they were true asylums. Everything changed. One could speak forever about how and why. The country changed. Immigrants poured in. And modern psychiatry is born. Modern psychiatry is born. Before it was born, psychiatrists were called alienists, and they lived, their main job was caring for people with severe illness. Wasn't called severe mental illness because that's the only kind of mental illness anyone talked about. They may have called it lunacy or other names that nowadays we would find insulting, but it was a category of people. But then again, like people came to cities, people didn't live on, in big families, they didn't care for the elderly, they didn't care for people who maybe were eccentric, and the places began to fill up. And then, of course, in the 20s, you could go through a whole history of how the progressive era of science was obsessed in a eugenic way with the genetic contamination of people who they considered mental defectives. They began to build asylums to get people away, to right. prevent them from contaminating the gene pool. You would either keep them out of the country or you would sterilize them and you would segregate them. So I just want to, like, we should just take a slight, just a pause here because when you discuss eugenics and this emphasis on the gene pool, people's minds go to the Nazis, and yet you call this sort of a hallmark of the progressive era. And this is something that progressives were interested in. This is not making, not to make the argument that progressives were like Nazis, but I wanted to maybe just explain that there was a period before the Third Reich where this idea of social Darwinism and eugenics was seen as sort of, you know, that was the, the science. And that was considered to be the like enlightened position. Yes. And it's a good, it's a good detour to make. You know, people yeah. often say that people of my generation, I was born in 1963, and it's true, didn't really learn about Reconstruction. The other period we really didn't learn about was the progressive era. So when I say progressive, I mean capital P. It was like a whole yeah. political movement. And it was uh, civil service reform. It was like there was a series of things progressives did that were that we would consider still progressive, but they had a tinge of these very outdated ideas that we don't speak of, that, that, that no longer have a, a serious, respectable audience anymore. What made them, however, not seem outdated at the time is that they no longer believed in a religious definition of the individual. And so instead of the soul being the measure of individual worth, they had the mind and they measured it with IQ tests. And if you fell below a certain measure, they felt you were dangerous. And since they had a very primitive idea of genetics, you know, one gene makes you larger, one gene makes you small, yeah. then they were fearful that a recessive gene might, in fact, unleash into the population somebody who would be passing as normal and would then sink us all. So the, the reason, again, why that's so important is because when I was a kid in like junior high school, my book is partly about my friendship with this Michael, my friend who later went mad and, and killed someone, but who was very brilliant. But we watched in science class, class the movie Inherit the Wind. And Inherit the Wind is this movie based on the Scopes trial, 1925, I think, unless it was 24. And the thing about the movie is that it looked like it was pitting the scientifically educated people against the religious rubes. And there are all these like fat, uneducated people from this Tennessee town with signs saying, give us that old time religion. And they walk around chanting and singing. Yeah. But what you don't know is that no one teaches you that the 
textbook Scopes was using was a eugenics textbook. So it didn't just teach Darwinian evolution. It had five categories for races. And the ones at the bottom, you can imagine, the ones at the top were Northern Europeans. And it even right. talks about mental defectives and how if they were animals, we would sterilize them or euthanize them. But instead, we will segregate them. And so actually, it was couldn't have been a, a more illiberal, appalling yeah. work. So on the one hand, it was enlightened, you might think, because it accepted this new theory of evolution. But it immediately misapplied, overapplied it, and used it to demonize the foundational idea that everyone can be equal, whether they're smart or not smart, and 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 whatever they're, whoever they may be. And so, in a way, that's already a battleground for how you. Yeah, well, measure it's a really worth. important point here, and I just want to sort of just put a button on it. A hundred years ago, the elite of our universities' systems were almost one eighty from what it is today, in the sense that you had. The idea of what we would call biological racism was accepted. It was considered the mainstream. This was the kind of sophisticated cosmopolitan opinion. Exactly. And not only that, but because progressives had created graduate schools on a Prussian model where everything's owned by the state, you were a civil servant if you were a professor. And that the idea was that you would then advise the government. So eugenicists testified before Congress that it was important to keep out Southern Europeans and Jews from, or they would talk about Eastern Europeans and Southern Italians because they would, it would, otherwise it would be committing racial suicide. And so a bad idea was actually turned into a law that stood and played a horrific role in excluding people from this country for a very long, until like the 60s, right? That right. law was there for a long time. So the reason why that's also important is because, and you know, my family, Louis Brandeis was a hero. He was a progressive, heroic figure. But in a famous Supreme Court case in which Oliver Wendell Holmes declared that it was ex not just acceptable, but a moral necessity to sterilize a woman and her daughter and their mother, Carrie Buck, because they were all found to be mentally deficient. Holmes wrote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. And the Supreme Court endorsed that decision eight to one. It was all the progressive justices, including Louis Brandeis. The only person to vote against it was a conservative Catholic. And Holmes was convinced it was because he was religious, had this backward understanding that reproductive rights were somehow sacred or it wasn't for people to adjudicate them. And this woman, Carrie Buck, who was in her 20s, who had been impregnated by a visitor to the household that ha she was working in as a servant, and they held against her as, you know, immorality was seen as a sign of mental defectiveness. That's why she was sent to an asylum. It was a trumped up test case for the very purpose of going to the Supreme Court to legitimate, uh, legitimize sterilization of people deemed intellectually unfit. And the test that she was given was an IQ test that morphed into the SAT. So in a yeah, sense, right. <laughs> it's like, you think the stakes are high now? I mean, but the idea that it Princeton was University is, 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 is wrapped up in all of this, the IQ test for World War I, as well as the SAT, and it all is coming from these terrible ideas of eugenics. Yeah. Yes. Nothing wrong with measuring intelligence. In fact, the person who devised it in France had done it originally as a way of helping people who needed extra accommodation. That's the irony of the thing. Yeah. It's just that if you eliminate the idea of the, that everyone's created equally in the image of God, if you eliminate the Declaration of Independence for all its other flaws, then what is your measurement? What is your unit of measurement? So that is a very big detour 
as a way of saying that the snake pits that existed originally existed before there were asylums, then the threat to asylums was partly when they were repurposed, not as places of healing, but as places to protect the elites who in their mind were very fearful of either racial contamination or any kind of genetic contamination. They walled all, they wanted the whole country to be a walled in garden, prophylaxis right. or sterilization. And, and we, uh, let's talk a little bit about now. Now we do have psychiatry and that enters into this. Yes, very much. The okay. history, psychiatry is haunted by that, this history yes. because for lots of reasons that actually even get more complicated. But, the, but basically what happened, among other things, is partly in the reaction against eugenics, which of course was an American idea, but was on steroids in Germany. And in fact, Hitler's doctor, when he was defending himself at the Nuremberg doctor's trial, used as one of the exhibits in his defense Oliver Wendell Holmes's ruling in Buck v. Oh. Bell, as if to say, we got it from you. But in a kind of recoil, understandable, psychoanalysis, which observes no kind of medical model, has no notion of biological origin of illness, had an extended life. And so that's kind of like, the reason that's important also is because the first group of people to get themselves out of the asylum, to be deinstitutionalized, were psychiatrists. Because if you were a psychoanalyst and you believed, as Freud said, in the psychopathology of everyday life, then everyday Here life we, requires, yes. is, a, is a form of psychopathology. And so instead of having to be an alienist in a, in a big, rural, isolated place like a feudal village... You can open an office like a dentist and have normal hours and treat middle-class people who can pay bills and you can go home at five. And in fact, you're treating people who would once have been called well. Now they're neurotic. Freud thought the mechanism of neurosis, everything grew out of childhood conflicts. Some of people became neuros, neurotic and some became psychotic. He didn't help. He didn't really treat people with psychosis, but the American version embraced the whole concept as, and it was a total system. You know, you, if, you, if you protested that there was no empirical evidence, you were resisting. And if you were resisting, you were participating and affirming the system because resistance is built into it in a way. And it's like arguing with a Marxist, which was another closed system. And so yeah. there was this superstructure in place. And then in the 50s, along came antipsychotic drugs, accidentally discovered like most of them are, in this case, it was a French surgeon who devised something to relax people before surgery, but he realized it reduced their anxiety and he had a hunch and a psychiatrist eventually tried it on people who had true psychosis and the effect was almost miraculous. And suddenly there was what seemed to be a pill that would mask or quiet the extreme symptoms of psychotic disorders. And so all of a sudden it seemed possible and, and it was possible for people not to be, need to be in asylums. And since they were terribly overcrowded, especially because during the Second World War, half of the staff was drafted. And what happened, and this is another little aside, I mean, in a way, everything is aside, but conscientious objectors in the Second World War did alternate service by being sent to these overcrowded, understaffed state hospitals. What they saw was appalling. They took photographs, smuggled them out. Life magazine ran them. They looked exactly like the liberated concentration camps Life magazine had also run pictures of. So conscientious objectors discovered at home 
a kind of concentration camp they could liberate. And that operative metaphor of the Holocaust and, and this concentration is how we, camps hangs over everything as well. Right. This is where we get years. one flew over the cuckoo's nest and that sort of this reform movement that looks at what, what were then called mental institutions or mental hospitals and yes. says this is an incredible cruelty that you are committing on people and maybe let's talk about like so so that so it's world war ii where we begin to see this the seeds of reform and we also now have well effective remedies in some ways and so in this period of like i guess starting in the 50s are we beginning to see deinstitutionalization i mean that happens later right it happens right it it happens later but it it already starts to become apparent that people can be released and okay. in a way state right. hospitals begin to reform they begin to release people who can be released you know ronald reagan wanted to shut down every single mental hospital in california but by the time he became governor in 1968 the population had already been half released and that was not because he wanted to but it is worth noting that sort of right-wing conservatives, and he grew out of that area of California where John Birch Society, and I'm not saying he was part of it, in fact, he famously mm -hmm. denounced them, but the arch conservatives thought communism and psychiatry and fluoride in the water were all a plot from right. the Soviets. And at the same time, left-wing civil libertarians thought this no one should ever have a right to put anyone anywhere against his will. No so it was what. a weird right-left alliance that was in Correct. favor of this. Okay. That's right. All right. So I want to now talk a little bit about almost a kind of social critic, philosophical critique that is coming out around this time too. And you touched on it before, which is the idea that modern capitalist society is sick and makes people unwell. And that in fact, the only sane approach or response is is what we would call insanity or something like it's this very facile thing. Who are the crazy ones? Are you really crazy if you go along with, you know, a, a country that's, you know, engaged in the Vietnam War and Agent Orange and putting all chemicals in food and things like that? So this is a little this is not the 50s. It's more we're coming into the 60s. But it's we're, let's we're mentioning Michel Foucault. We're talking about kind of very, you know, we're talking about philosophers really who are now changing our definition of what madness is in our society and that does that and that let's talk a little bit about that and the kind of effect that that has so the effect is of course enormous the the, the only thing i i'd say is that some of these things which will become dogmatic and extreme are have always been present in american thinking you know okay like thorough you want to march to the beat of your own drummer or you build, I mean, I, we had this as posters on our wall when I was a kid in class and you build a castle in the air. Now you just have to put a you know, foundation under it. And so the idea that you dream and inhabit your dream is almost an American credo. And so, and being left alone is as well, but something else began to happen. Partly it was of course, because Freud had defined sort of, he had defined normal life in terms of illness. The psychopathology of everyday life really does mean that in order to function in civilization, you, you, you are going to pay a price and that price is going to either be neuro neurosis or absolute madness. And then, so that's already in the air. 
And then what begins to happen also is that in the 60s, people like R.D. Lang, who was a Scottish psychiatrist, I don't know that people speak much about him now. He was hugely famous. And he got Sean Connery, you know, he treated Sean Connery with LSD to help him overcome his childhood feeling of inhibition. But in any case, R.D. Lang, who partly grew out of a Marxist tradition, partly grew out of a psychoanalytic tradition, declared that in a sane society, schizophrenia is, a, is the only sane response. In an insane society, and our, ins, and our society was crazy-making and insane. He saw the family as an instrument of madness, that of produ- produced madness, and it was a reflection of society which also produced madness. And the family had already been responsible for making you ill in Freudian terms. It, that didn't mean Freud, who, that's the paradox. He was a bourgeois thinker and he was, up, he was healing people inside of the framework of the family, but the family made you sick. It was like, instead of eugenics, there was Lamarckian inheritance. You inherited it from any, your parents. Did he have any, was there any social science or surveys or evidence to back it up? Or was it just a theory that lots of people liked? He came, Freud was a genius and his evolution is very interesting. He started as a neurologist. He really did believe in the brain. Okay. Now the, the reality is we knew so little about the brain. It right. was locked in its skull and nobody had an MRI and nobody had a test and nobody even had medication that appreciably affected its symptoms. And so in a way, the people who understood that the brain was really the source of mental illness were phrenologists and then lobotomists. Right. And so right, in right. a way, they were, they were right about where it was located. They just, didn't, they just didn't go at it all that sophisticatedly. And so it's, a, it's important to realize just it was an, these were real problems. And simultaneously, there were philosophical problems. But everybody recognized at that time that madness was something that alienated you from yourself. That's also why psychiatrists were called alienists. They had a general belief that the city might make you sick. That's why those places were built in the countryside and that right. being out in, the, in nature would be good for you. But then it really became a way of, of understanding civilization as the source of illness. And that is what inverted the logic of ordinary life. And it's one thing for a poet to do it, like Allen Ginsberg, whose yeah. mother was severely schizophrenic. And that's and what Howell is about, his great poem. That's what Howell is about. Yeah. And also he, Ginsberg, in, when he was 20 or something like that, had to sign the permission for his mother's lobotomy. And he pretty much spent the rest of his life repenting it and trying to transform the world into a place in which she was a touchstone of sanity and everybody else arrayed right. against her was mad. But in fact, to be a child as he was and see your mother with bloody wrists or to have to, or to yeah. see her try to seduce you naked when you were a kid or to escort her as he did to a board and care facility that eventually expelled her because she became so paranoid is to also be traumatized, of course. But in any case, a poet isn't responsible for the care of someone with severe mental illness. Right. R.D. Lang was a psychiatrist. That's what and, I want to get. Yeah. And he actually created a place that was a kind of asylum without medication, although there was LSD. And that's another thing worth mentioning, that in the 50s, in the same year, I think, antipsychotic medication was introduced the same year that LSD was introduced. And they were both given to psychiatrists. So one of them 
yeah. and the CIA. No. <laughs> they well, yes, the and CIA. also the CIA, right? <laughs> that's no, that's no joke. That the CIA used psychiatrists to test these drugs because they were trying to come up with a brainwashing elixir that because they thought the Chinese and the Russians were able to do it. But at the same time, here's a drug that in, one drug induces hallucinations and is deemed mind expanding. And the other one masks hallucinations and is seen as a terrible, oppressive chemical straitjacket. Even though when it was invented, when it was, I mean, applied, it was an amazing thing to read descriptions of people who had never been able to leave a hospital, who had never been able to do work. The first person they tried it on in, in, in France, who was violent and irrational, played a full game of bridge eventually. You know? and not that it's all so miraculous. It's just that the cruelty of not only demonizing the only thing that seemed to work, but actually making the state of illness a, a lofty, transcendent right. experience is to me to, well, I, I mean, it's a terrible analogy, but I'll, I'll give it anyway. It's like, it's one thing for Satan to decide in Paradise Lost, I'm going to, you know, rebel against God, but to say, evil be thou my good, to say, I'm, right, going, to take, right. I'm going to take what's conventionally seen as bad and make it a virtue is the is is cruel because the people who most needed help who were not able often to ask for it were the sacrificial victims in right. all of this in fact they closed rd lang's experiment after five years because two people danced off or jumped off the roof while hallucinating while taking lsd and they were psychotic to begin with and so and five years is a very short time and so although he had a wonderful charismatic rapport with people, you would reporters would sometimes show him talking to somebody who was psychotic, as his son pointed out, where would he be the next day and the next? You know, it's 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 care is not a momentary thing. Sure. It's, it's and that is, of course, the problem among others. So that's part of the weird okay, so, collision. So these, these these deep ideas about society and madness. At what point would you say is the tipping point where we begin letting lots of people out of the mental hospitals and we basically stop, we, we, we kind of lose a, a safety net, if you will, for people who have serious mental illness, which has now been plaguing our society, you could say, for 50 years. I mean, it's... Well, what's interesting is that until antipsychotic medication came along, psychiatrists were perfectly happy. They were mostly psychoanalysts and they had, you know, they were the chairmen of every medical school psychiatry department. They were actually explaining to mothers of people with schizophrenia that they were responsible for their child's illness because there was a notion of the double bind and the schizophrenogenic mother who induced it. It was a logical step once you believe the family itself is the crucible of illness. So all those things were going on. Suddenly along comes medication and it really does make it seem as though state hospitals, which were genuinely horrible at that point, yeah. could be emptied. But they were not, it didn't chasten the profession in a way that reminded them of the biological reality of some illnesses. Instead, it almost allowed them to discount the very ill now that they could have medication and they could get on with what had, was really the next iteration of psychoanalytic thinking which was that instead of the family, poverty, 
society, the country was the crucible of illness. And so, and that's also what R.D. Lang spoke about. And until you heal society, people will continue to be made ill. And so suddenly going, it went from, psychoanalysis went from being a radical thing, which trained you to think about sex and childhood fantasy and repression as bad, but all of a sudden it was, an, it was a bourgeois form of accommodating you to your environment. And what really had to happen was that in the name of psychiatric health, you needed to transform society. I should also say, and again, everything is like a footnote 12 pages long, that in Brown versus the Board of Education, that in that famous year of 1954, psychologists and psychiatrists testified. And they testified that it made that what's interesting about it is they testified that segregation made people not just unhappy, but mentally incapable of learning. They said this about black children who were not allowed, who were prevented hmm. from learning with whites. And so it was an incredibly well-intended yeah. intervention, but it had two effects. One was it sort of made, in, a, in addition to the implicit racist assumption, although some of it was you know, derived from these doll experiments conducted by Kenneth Clark, it was also, what it did was it made feeling happy and comfortable a test of the law rather than a way of like the law had to conform to a psychological standard of well-being rather than a psychologist testifying to uphold an overturning of the law. And it gave psychologists and psychiatrists enormous authority. They already had it after the Second World War because so many people had been rejected for service as a result of what was considered mental instability and because shell shock was a tremendous problem. And whether right. there were people predisposed to it or not, hard to say. But in any case, all of those things happened. I've, I'm afraid I, in this, in my one parentheses too many, I may have forgot, I may have, when I close it, I'm not, I need to pick up, I need to answer the question you asked me, which I'd like you to ask me again, if you recall it, because it was going to move us forward. And I think it was the moment well, when- I want to get, to, what's the tipping point? When, so the, ti yeah. the tipping point, we had a period where- we had lobotomies, we had antipsychotic medications. You, you, you talked about this idea that it's not just the family now, it's the society that maybe makes us sick. But it all kind of comes together, including the stuff we talked about with Reagan, so that there were people on the right and there were people on the left who sort of all agreed, well, mental, mental hospitals are bad. And then we lost a safety net in some ways that we had since the 19th century with these asylums. And we are in, in maybe starting, I guess, in the 70s or maybe the late 60s. We now have a world where People with severe mental illnesses are sort of living amongst us, some often on the streets as homeless people. So we should pause for the moment yeah. of great optimism in 1963 okay. when John F. Kennedy gave a speech endorsing what became the last major piece of legislation he signed before his assassination, in which he called, it was the Community Mental Health Act, in which he called for replacing what he called the cold mercy of custodial isolation, which would be supplanted by the open warmth of community concern and capability. And it was a call for the creation of community mental health centers. And by the way, this would, is a personal thing for Jack, well, the president. It's personal yes. because he had a sister who was lobotomized and basically kind of ruined by the father. Exactly. Yeah. His sister was given a secret lobotomy by Joe Kennedy, who was at the time ambassador to England. And 
the daughter had begun escaping, and it, she was perhaps shading from what was then considered a form of mild retardation or intellectual incapacity to what may well have been and seems to have been the beginnings of a psychotic disorder. And he was, she would come back with leaves in her hair, and he was very afraid that this was Rosemary Kennedy, that, he, that she was going to get pregnant and humiliate him and ruin everyone's political chances. And he gave her a lobotomy. Kennedy didn't know. He was quite close to his sister. And Eunice Kennedy didn't know. And they were both appalled. So that set in motion this campaign, never speaking about her potential mental illness, only about her intellectual disability. But those two elements were merged. Kennedy gives this speech about the warmth of communal care. And the idea is that now that there are these drugs, people can be released. What's interesting, though, is that the it was a beautiful, hopeful speech, except that it spoke about a new emphasis on prevention and treatment and cure. And there were no preventions for people with severe mental illness, and there were no cures. And you would have to then only be speaking in terms of the psychopathology of everyday life, in terms of Freud's idea that everyone is ill because of childhood repression, just in different degrees. And that way, in a sense, at the very moment when they were going to be releasing people with severe illness who would need an intensive amount of care, but who really could be released, mental illness itself was redefined. And even right. think about the name. It's the community, their community mental health centers. Imagine if you knock down Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital because you were going to build mobile cancer centers, but then you decided to call them mobile health units and somebody everybody was already, had can everybody had cancer, right? Or that someone felt that if you did meditation and yoga and ate properly, the chances of your getting cancer might be diminished. And so you have these young idealistic teams and they're going around teaching everybody yoga and good diet. And somebody with stage four, you know, lung cancer right. comes along yeah. and says, I need chemotherapy. And they say, oh, we don't, we're not set up for that, but there's a yoga class at two. Yeah, and in right. a sense, when you read accounts by amazing memoirs of like young psychologists, I read one, an account by a guy who created the Baltimore Mental Health Center, Community Mental Health Center. They were all about working in inner city Baltimore as they saw it. And people were made ill in their minds because of racism and poverty and marginalization. And the one group of people, he says, they would not take are those released from hospitals because they required so much care that right. it would overwhelmed them. And of course, they were just as marginalized and discriminated against. And what did they do? He tells you, he says they called the cops. And so you see at the very moment of greatest optimism, mental illness, severe mental illness is being criminalized because the people who are in the business of giving the care are no, have, have redefined it to embrace everyone. And because an idea that they need to eliminate social injustice, which made the war on poverty, which sponsored some of the first community mental health centers, a kind of war on mental illness. It just wasn't a war on the severe kinds of mental illness that had sent people to the hospital. And so they, that population that was released, some went home and those who had been released sooner before the great movement, they often did well. They'd been there for a long time. They took mm -hmm. medication. Masses of them disappeared from view and they either became homeless, many wound up in the prisons. And it should be said also, again, so many things always had to be happening. Kennedy was assassinated. Johnson took up this 
last piece of legislation and folded it into the great society. It was a sacred robe that he wrapped around himself. And that was part of the transformation of society. And it sounded wonderful. It's just that it flew in the face of everything anyone who had actual experience with severely ill people knew. And so it, and, and that's, and, and I, that's what set it in yeah. motion. And let's stop there because what you're talking about, which is it, it criminalized it. The police often had to deal with this. Well, that's what we hear today. I mean, that is the same problem in some ways that we are hearing when we look at Jordan Neely and the and tragically what happened to him on the subway in New York. But we're talking about this. The police are not equipped to be dealing with people with severe mental illness. But this problem did not start a few years ago. It started maybe 60 years ago. Yes. And it started in a way because there was a crack in psychiatry itself. Someone okay, like R.D. Lang, yeah. who we would call an anti-psychiatrist, was in his way part of psychiatry. He just wasn't part of the medical model of psychiatry. Neither was Thomas Zaz, who wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness, also in the early 60s. And that essentially denied, he was a psychoanalyst, denied the existence of severe mental illness as an actual disorder. He was also a very strict civil libertarian. Were these people, by the way, when you mentioned Zaz and, and Artie Lang, they, and you mentioned before that they were taken very seriously. They were influential figures for a moment. Tremendously influential. Okay. And it, it, again, it should also be said, and I'm trying hard to pull back from the temptation to just say, can you believe all this crazy shit? Because it really right. was. That, but yeah. at the same time, psychiatry was still emerging from its dark ages. You know, it was partly... In, in Germany, where they had really understood aspects of the genetic role, they killed every single person living in a state hospital. That was the first final solution. They literally built gas chambers to kill 70,000 mentally ill people, as a kind of, which became a kind of trial run for killing Jews. They were both public health initiatives, since Jews were seen as contaminating for genetic reasons as well, or racial reasons. But in a sense, in in the United States, psychoanalysis, especially after the war, when so many analysts who had fled, you know, Hitler came here, but also there were reasons. And also there was no good system of diagnosis. It had not been professionalized. And that's an amazing thing also. And so again, people will leap ahead and say, well, the big DSM, which is like the yellow pages of mental diseases, is now totally in cahoots with the pharmaceutical companies, which is true, and the insurance companies, also true. But at the time, not having a, a, a fixed diagnosis for a serious disorder, it's like when you read that there didn't used to be time zones, like every train station had its own time in, in <laughs> rural America. Right. And you just kind of thought, well, here it's 10 after four. And in a way, every psychiatrist was using his own set of criteria. And so professionalizing that was part of the slow, difficult work. So was recognizing the idea of biological elements. So was the fact that once you recognize the biological elements, you couldn't really find clear evidence of it, except that accidentally discovered medication had the inadvertent effect right. of masking the symptoms of something you didn't understand. But, but the people who were willing to romanticize illness see it as heroic and emblematic, happened mm. to have come along at the very moment when we were not just releasing people who were severely ill, but then 
because this really encompasses the world, the law came along in its eagerness to join the moral struggle and shut the door of the asylum behind everybody, making it almost impossible to hospitalize people. And so the hospitals, which now had this new standard where being ill was not a reason to be hospitalized, being violent was the only symptom that counted, the hospitals started to fulfill the the dire prophecy about them, which is that they were for violent people. And they couldn't hold you because you had to, you couldn't hold people any longer simply to treat them. And so, so many and the people again who were promoting the change in laws were not were often not people who worked with people with severe illnesses or who knew anything about them. They were, and I know this when I was writing my book and talking to the law professors who became my yeah. friend's mentor. When he went to Yale Law School after having schizophrenia, his mentors had clerked for judges who had changed the laws, just altering the application of mental illness, either to make it easier for people to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, even if they weren't insane, but to mitigate a sentence if they felt there were people more likely to be sent to prison if they were underprivileged, so let them plead insanity, although then they'd get sent to state hospitals forever and a day, or sort of changing the rules without knowing anything at all about the true nature of psychotic yes. disorder. In their minds, and it's an it's an unfortunate comparison, they saw it as an extension of the civil rights movement that, you know, blacks were well, in ghettos that, that, and mentally ill people were in hospitals. I'm sorry, I mean, what were you gonna say? Yeah, no, no, I'm saying you, you I mean your friend was when he was at Yale Law School was coming up with this sort of argument about the Americans with Disabilities Act and how it should cover these severe mental illnesses. It was like definitely saw as part of the civil rights movement. And there were like these stories about like, can you believe it? This person is diagnosed with schizophrenia. They had a mental break, but now he's at Yale Law School and he's completely brilliant. And you get into all of that. And I mean, we we know what happens here. He is a terrible murder. And but the there is something kind of cruel about this optimism that's coming from the right, coming from the best intentions in some ways. That you want to that that there are people who have very troubled minds but brilliant minds, and that they that they can contribute to, and that's a, one of the things I think that you deal with so brilliantly in the book. And maybe just talk about this idea that is there a kind of connection between brilliance at times and madness, and is the madness something that gives maybe a genius this unique perspective that can in a way enrich us, even if they are fighting this nightmarish internal struggle of delusions and, you know, anguish? Well, I think it's two questions. One of them is whether or not there's a connection between illness and genius, severe mental illness and genius. The other is why we continue to believe that there is a connection between madness and genius. And and those are separate because when people say that there's a connection and they let's say they're imagining someone with schizophrenia they're undoubtedly imagining the unbridled associations that may come from someone who is speaking you know like the words are linked by sound as well as by sense or you know that they're that they seem disinhibited in a way that might almost appear fruitful or someone who is having a manic episode who might have bipolar disorder and is not medicated. But nobody thinks that madness and genius are close allied when they look at someone who has what are called the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. 
catatonia, a lack of will or motivation or purpose, or even the effort to think is so difficult that you sort of retreat entirely. No one thinks, wow, I wish I had that Promethean fire burning in me. And so the (laughs) romantic fantasies were all about almost believing you could reach into the asylum and borrow something for yourself, you know, like it was the great repository of metaphor and inspiration, both legally, let's say this person is disabled or disadvantaged and therefore not in his right mind. Of course, the problem with saying people aren't in their right minds, even if they are, in what you think is a humane gesture is that you're robbing them of individual will. The tragedy of someone who is truly psychotic is that he or she does not know the difference between what's real and what isn't. And so the, like, it may well be that there are certain states where people's minds are freed to associate in a way, but, but that does not seem to, def- that is not a definition of what severe mental illness is. Depression, there are forms of depression so severe, like a quarter of the severe depression is considered psychosis. You can be delusional. And the terror the pain. It does not give you a new sight. It shrinks your world to a pinpoint. But at the same time, I know exactly what you're asking. And here's something, this is a strange moment. I did not put it in the book, but I I was very conscious of it. I had more, there's a little bit in my book about Norman Mailer, who stabbed his wife, partly because my mother would always say whenever his name came up, he stabbed his wife. (laughs) The way she often said about Robert Lowell, he broke his wife's nose twice because once he hit her and once he smashed the car. But the point is not that. The point is that Mailer was really in a homicidal, having a homicidal fit when he stabbed his wife, and he could easily have killed her. He was taken to Bellevue. He made his argument that as a genius, it was very important that people believed everything he wrote was the product of his sane, creative mind. He didn't want the stigma, the taint. He was sent for a brief amount of time and then released. But what's interesting is how many of his friends or associates rallied around him. And I was reading an oral oral biography of Norman Mailer, and Irving Howe, sober, intellectual, socialist Irving Howe, says about Norman Mailer, he was our genius. He allowed himself to do things the rest of us wouldn't. And it was almost as if his envy wasn't that he thought of any formula that was useful to humanity, or even that he wrote in that state something lasting or beautiful. It was that he conducted a kind of existentialist experiment in which he did something transgressive. And I was stunned that someone who was such a moral thinker would express envy. And in the same book, Lionel Trilling, great moral important literary critic, is interviewed with his wife. And Trilling spoke of Mailer stabbing his wife as a Dostoevskian experiment, as if it was a work of literature, as if he was Raskolnikov killing the pawnbroker. His wife, who's also a good critic and had her head on her at that moment, said, actually, she I thought she said Norman needed to go to the hospital. But it's extraordinary to me the temptation (laughs) to translate into literary risk as, and, and I think a lot of that, I mean, I mentioned Satan before, but you know, Satan is famous for saying in Paradise Lost, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Mm. And people often quote that as if it is a tribute 
to the grandeur of the mind, but actually it's a rejection of God, of, of the truth order in the world, and he's lying because he can't make a heaven of hell. He he says, whither I fly, am hell. He, he, he would like his mind to be everything. He is the first intellectual. He wants to think his way out of his predicament without having to repent. And so the mind is its own place. And he is embraced as a great romantic hero. And he can't even make a hell of heaven. He can only make a hell of earth, which mm-hmm. is a modest achievement in a way. And so, but that, you, when I was at graduate school and was thinking about writing about Paradise Lost, I know I, it, was, it was taken for granted. It's not why I didn't finish my dissertation or, or even started, but it was taken for granted that, of course, Satan was the hero of the book. Because to be the, the poet, you know, Blake said Milton was of the poets, the devil's party. That, that Milton was of the devil's party, but didn't know it. But that's not actually true. Although, but in any case, it's not a simple thing. But you were asking, where do we get this cult of genius? Well, I, I mean, I, some I, of it is I, that. Let me let me put a point on it because I want to. There's just a lot of examples of geniuses who have had episodes of madness. Whether we're talking about Ezra Pound, Kanye West, Charlie Parker, famously, you know, at times he would almost he would show up, you know, with no clothes on and. and almost asking to be, you know, taken to a mental hospital. There are, Thelonious Monk sadly spent the last probably decade or so of his life in that catatonic, depressed state, making no music. It's just, it comes up a lot that you, you, you can look at various kinds of artists and you sort of see, well, you know, th- these are some of the greats and they suffered clearly from s- severe mental illnesses. And again, it's not to say that everybody who suffers is a genius it's not to say that you can't be a genius if you don't suffer it's not to glamorize it and i think i'm so glad that you mentioned there are all the other negative parts of it too that we never talk about but there is something there i mean and it's you know there's the famous movie beautiful mind is another example of you know the what the princeton mathematician but what's interesting about a beautiful mind is that he did all of his work before he became good point Yes. yes and in a sense the title which is such a wonderful title almost seems to suggest that if in order to be worthy of our attention, you have to have what we can call a beautiful mind. You have to be a genius. His friends were very keen for him not to take medication because they felt he had too beautiful a mind, but his mind was entirely given over to paranoid delusions. What you say about suffering is interesting because sometimes when I'm asked the question, what I think, I've never said it, but I'll say it because I think it is the analogy I always come to in my mind, is Elie Wiesel saying that to suffer, to be Jewish is not to suffer. To be Jewish is to find an answer to suffering. Mm. It's very tempting to find the suffering, to mistake the suffering for the substance of the matter. The suffering is a bad thing that happens, but learning to manage it is different. And I do think Ezra Pound, for example, I was not out of his mind. He was, however, sent to St. Elizabeth's because people felt someone so smart, someone who had been and a how poet. How could they get in with Mussolini? Exactly, exactly. Saul Bella wrote a terrific letter to Faulkner explaining why he should not be released. If he was going to be released, he should be hanged for treason. 
He could only be one or the other. But being a great writer, even if you were, is not exculpatory. But the, but the, but the larger point is that one of the reasons people often say antipsychotic medication is unpleasant. I'm sure it's as dreadful as the people who say it's dreadful really is. But they often forget to mention the illness that it oh, is yeah. helping you. And most people don't sit around and say, God, I had the best chemotherapy yesterday. They've sure. simply decided it's preferable to cancer. And I understand the mind is different for all of those reasons. But, you know, in, in Greek tragedy, you ask the muse to inspire you, but whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. And when we developed a kind of cult of madness, and when that partly was because the mind was only its intelligence, mm -hmm. we lost the unit, the sole unit of measurement. So it didn't just get you into college and keep you from getting sterilized. It was the passport. It was everything. Yeah, it was and you. So yeah, it was, it was right. you. And so in a sense, to it was almost like a favor bestowed on my friend that everyone decided by common agreement who wanted to help him that he was a genius and brilliant. It well, didn't he was matter. a genius. Well, he couldn't do the work at that point. So you have no, to No, you're explain. right. No, at that point, but I'm saying, but before then, I mean, I just to say, you make it clear, we are talking about an extraordinary mind with the ability to like almost instantaneously absorb really complicated texts and kind of give them yeah. right back to you with a kind of authority. I mean, and you described his 12 years old he was doing. It's incredible. Yes. Yeah. He had, and he had all the outer trappings of intelligence yeah. al already. He absorbed things perfectly, he had a photographic memory. But those were things that actually extended what appeared to be his, the appearance of his abilities when he couldn't reason any longer. Right. And, and, th and that's, that was a part of the tragedy that there wasn't a category people could have. And the other thing, as I mentioned, is that it's sort of, it was easier to be, I wanted to be brilliant. I wanted to be a prodigy. I was a terrible violin player, but I always walked around with my violin thinking, how about this? You know, as if it were yeah. all a matter of looking a certain way, but it's easier to be brilliant than to be smart. And it's easier to be smart than to actually do anything every day. And so we wanted to be brilliant. We would settle for smart, but we yeah. were terrified of having to actually well, function and he had to in order to recover what he had lost he would have needed to submit himself to an ordinary life yeah. and the reason i say that is because i myself in no way extraordinary shared the horror of the ordinary life in a dreadful way that has taken me took me half my life to unlearn and that was i don't want to blame it on the culture that i was in but somehow it was my own inclination and it was partly the value system that saw brilliance as, as a kind of nobility that exempted you from ordinary sorrows. Yeah. Well, I want to push on one thing, and I, I accept what you've said. It's, and we're not really arguing. We're just having a no, conversation. Please. I mean, I it's, you know. But, but there, there is a certain kind of writer or artist, someone who creates, that when they describe their process, I mean, I think it was Arthur Miller who talked about how he would felt like he was being visited almost by characters in his head. Now, I don't want to compare that. I know that that is not the same thing as paranoid delusions, thinking that your parents are doubles who were Nazis out to kill you, which is, you know, you, you get into this in the book. But there is some, is there something similar? Like I'm thinking of John Updike, for example, or Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll writes like Jabberwocky, but apparently my understanding is 
he, it's not like he sat down and crafted up all the all of all of these nonsense, which just sort of came out of him, almost like he was channeling something. Is that to me seems close to getting into a different kind of consciousness, maybe, or exploring a part of your mind that is most people can't access. I don't know, but I'm saying, is there any connection with something like that? Or you think of great jazz players too, or something like that. Just it just comes. Yeah. It's like they they didn't plan it out or anything. It just sort of there it is. For sure, I, it's completely possible. I don't yeah. think, however, that it should be identified with madness. Very good. But yeah. but it's also and this is will sound like the most pedantic response of all. But in a way, there are different forms. So a right. great song comes out of you in a different way, perhaps then a novel, you never blurt a novel out. You know, if Philip Roth was, said he would always carry a ream of paper around in the ghostwriter in case the whole thing came to him on the subway. But actually, the weather changes, time passes, and you can feel when you're writing like you are, in fact, mad because you're inhabiting an artificial reality. Sure. And that is a strange thing. And I think that we're all going to be encountering such things more as the nature of artificial reality gets so good that it elicits all the inner responses of something actual. And But th what's different is really inhabiting and believing it. And so, and, and I don't know what the answer to that is, but it is knowing the difference. And because, and, you know, I mean, I there's this famous story of Dickens' son who hears a crowd out in the garden and he looks out the window and there's his father simply reciting something he's working on and doing all the voices. Right. Um, okay. Right. Yeah. A line. I get T.S. Eliot borrows a line from a Dickens novel. He do the police in different voices. But Dickens did everything in different voices. Right. And there are moments when he's writing where he'll start to write and meet her. And I am sure he was gripped by inspiration. But ins but that does not mean that I guess it's an approach to something that we all maybe desire. But it's the absence of sense that I, yeah. Only because I keep reading about what it is the state people are in, but that in no way means, by the way, also there are people who don't require medication. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be masked. I'm speaking, my experience came directly thinking about my friend who, as you say, thought his parents were Nazi replicas who had killed the real ones. And so yeah. in that sense, not. But, you know, there is like... Anyone who's ever revised anything knows that inspiration only goes so far for the of things course. That we and love. there's different, and we're talking about different forms. I, what I was trying to get at is, when I was living in Egypt, there is uh, something that happens all throughout Northern Africa called you choose something called got. It's like oh, a mild, sure. you know what I'm talking about. And then, you know, eventually you you sort of have a got chewing session, and you get to what they call the hour of Solomon, where people just speak in verse. And it's because they've gotten to another level of consciousness. I don't think that's the same as madness, and I understand the difference. But it does seem like maybe one of the reasons why we see a lot of geniuses also suffering from mental illnesses is because they are tapping into another way, another, I don't know, another consciousness of some, of some ways. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense to me. I, I know, I know. I mean, yeah. I'll be, I'm, being, I'm being honest here. The chastening experience of working on this book for so long and sure. seeing the toll of the romantic vision and probably also some other 
element of myself, <laughs> it keeps retreating from it. It's sort of like when the rabbis of the Talmud say, after the temple's destroyed, prophecy is only given to fools and children. Now, right. I'm sure that prophets were seized and transported. Right. And it's almost as if it's a warning not to heed someone seized and transported. Sure. Because it's so untrustworthy, both for you and them. But yeah. I do I and 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 it's and and what's ironic for me is that I grew up worshiping literature, that this book is partly written against that. And yeah. so to be taken, to be, you know, Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, felt composed it in his sleep and he would wake up with the verses form. No, oh, that's that that's a great example, right? Exactly. And so like but yeah. he and he attributed it to his muse who may well have been God, but right. yes, absolutely. But I suppose it has to do with being able to control right. what you create. When I was a kid, I asked my sister who always knew about these things. It wasn't that young. It was before Michael became ill, what the difference was between being neurotic, which Michael was always telling me I was, and being psychotic. And she said, and I don't know where she got this from. She said, if you're psychotic, two plus two equals five. If you're neurotic, it equals four, but it hurt, but it hurts. <laughs> that's fantastic. And, and I thought, well, and that's probably why Freud said that his goal was to deliver people to everyday unhappiness. He didn't believe yeah. In the undamning, in that sense, he was a moral philosopher of a sort, even if he was a yeah. charlatan for a doctor. All right. Well, with a little bit of time we have left, I want to now ask a question that I think is really, I think it's a, a question that your book poses in the same way when you're done with it. And it's, it's this. We've now known for 60 years or so that severe mental illnesses are different than the maladies of living in everyday society. Uh, or mental, you know, and that there's a real that there are these that people who suffer from that need real care, and it's real care over a period of time. We've known it for sixty years as a society, probably. Why have we not done anything about it? Why do we still have public policies that seem to be stuck in this era of, you know, the Kennedy speech? You know, why is it that we've not learned the lesson? And rebuilt the infrastructure that started as asylums in the nineteenth in the eighteenth century, nineteenth century. Sorry. Yeah. Well, there were boring public policy answers that I would never have cared at all about had I not wandered through there. And and I and they need to be spoken of as well. And I'll quickly mention okay. only yeah. that it's always a shock to discover that in addition to all of the folly, the very fact that Medicaid doesn't reimburse patients who are in state hospitals which is where you go if you are truly ill. But if you're in a long-term care psychiatric facility, you won't get reimbursed by like the largest mental health care provider in the world. And that was an exclusion initially done to save money, but also because the architects of the community mental health centers wanted federalized medicine. They, didn't, they wanted to destroy the state system and they didn't want to reform it. And in a sense, that's what they did. They replaced it only with money and with community care receiving federal money, but they eliminated this intermediate state. So there are many broken systems now. Of course, the federal government's involved. The state can own, control certain things that the cities don't. 
And then there is, there is a civil liberties bar, and they are very invested in defending what they would consider the civil liberties of somebody who may not know what's real and what isn't, who may be a genuine harm, risk of harm, those, and, and still fight for it. That's what Thomas Zaz did when he defended the right, not just the right, but the necessity of a woman who died in a box when I was in college. Right. He said it would have been a crime to send her to the hospital because it would have been a, it was a fake illness. It wouldn't have been a real diagnosis and it would have violated her rights. What I feel is that if somebody will say about civil liberties that you have the right, you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater unless there is a fire. But what if there is a fire, but it's only in your mind? Can you yell fire? If the answer is no, then you need to acknowledge that there is a state in which somebody is not in his mind or her mind, and you're not honoring their autonomy, you're betraying it. But in order to do that, you have to be willing to trust the authorities and our institution. I do sometimes fear. I mean, there are very wonderful people and they're really important reformers, people like E. Fuller Torrey, the whole Treatment Advocacy Center, and, and many others. And what Mayor Adams is trying to do is important. But there's a part of me that wonders if people have really lost their faith in the profession, if they've lost their faith in the institutions that have to make decisions like this, and if bureaucracies, vast billion-dollar bureaucracies devoted to caring for people with what's called mental illness are, will have to stop doing what they do in, and stop making the claim that they are treating the mental health of everyone in the country in order for us to be able to focus on a small group of people who need a tremendous amount of attention and care, then it's hard to imagine how that will stop. I suppose we can add on the necessary care, but so many people also in a culture in which your wound is your ticket of admission, in which being yeah. disabled, being ill in some form, A, earns you insurance. If you're in the DSM, whether you have claustrophobia or schizophrenia, you have to be, I have a diagnosis to get reimbursed. And so it's all in one big book, but also in a sense, it's almost like it would be insulting to deprive people, so the people who may be well of their illness and while assigning those who are too ill to even know they are ill of you know, the need to get care that they may not want, but that often will be very restorative and it will not necessarily be confining. But these are honest, complex conversations. And I hate the answer, we have to have an honest conversation, but there have to be some people who say well, what this is about. I mean, just pick kind of teasing out from what you're from your research in your book. I mean, I think the first thing is we need to have a different vocabulary for people yes. with severe mental illnesses. That's a different situation than the fact that lots of people, lots of, you know, people in schools have ADD or people have forms of depression or what or, you know, they're overeating. All of that's bad. And, you know, it's it would be nice. We got to treat it. But that's a different level of order of priority than a very small minority of people who have the severe mental illnesses that really do make them a danger to themselves and everyone else. If they're not getting care they need. It. Right. It's a subset of those illnesses. But that is already happening to some degree. Yeah. Adams has a senior advisor on for severe mental illness. And I promise you, de Blasio did not. It's just because that <laughs> even that right. term, SMI, or you know what it's yeah, yeah. it's a it's an effort. But we're always trying to retrofit something after the great leveling, you know. Yeah. It's very hard to it's easier to tear down than to build up, and where we haven't even decided that what we want to build yet, and and how to do it, and that's very disheartening. But 
I'm not hopeless about it. Well, this has been great. We're going to have you back many times, I hope. You are really one of my favorite writers. And you're also, I should say, just personally a real mensch. So it's very rare to have a great skill, you know, in our profession, in our Republic of Letters, but also to be a really great, like, friend and mentor. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Eli. It was yeah. a real pleasure. Absolutely. And I would just say to the listeners, you will learn a lot from this book in a lot of ways. So please check it out. It's called The Best Minds by Jonathan Rosen. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.